You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIV Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. Sit back, relax, and join LF Shafak in conversation with Matthew Stadlin, recorded as part of the Rayworth's Harrogate Literature Festival. Enjoy. A really warm welcome to this Rayworth's Harrogate Literature Festival event. It's part of the Harrogate International Festivals, and we are so grateful to Rayworth's for sponsoring the festival once again. My name is Matt Stadlin. I'm a presenter and a writer. I was a BBC presenter. I was an LBC presenter. I was a Telegraph columnist. I currently host lots of events for the How To Academy, and I'm very proud to have helped curate this year's Harrogate Literature Festival. My guest this afternoon, or this morning, I'm not quite sure when this is going to go out, it's part of the fun of it, is Alif Shafak. She's a, a British-Turkish author, maybe she'd describe herself as a Turkish-British author, who knows? She has written 18 books, 11 of them I think are novels, and she's been translated into 54 languages, which is just quite an astonishing, staggering testament to her fame around the world and, and the difference that she has made to peoples across the globe. She's an award winner as well. Too many awards, too many things to go through in this introduction. I want to get started because we've got so much to say. And Alif, you've written this new book, How to, say, How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division, and, and clearly so relevant now, given that we're in the middle of this pandemic. Thank you. And, and Matthew, may I say it's really wonderful to do this, to have this conversation together. Um, and, and, and you're right in the sense that in many ways this book is, um, is very much shaped by the times we're living in. Uh, I think it felt like a response to, to what we were going through at the beginning of the pandemic. And of course, it's not over yet at all. Uh, and I realized I was struggling with lots of negative emotions, including anxiety, fear, confusion, and then, of course, you also realize you're not the only one. Many people are actually struggling with similar emotions. So I was planning to write something completely different, but I put that aside and I decided to start from scratch uh, and, and, and just go within and try to understand this moment in time. If I may add this, there's a, there's a saying by Doris Lessing that always makes me think. She was talking about literature as being analysis after the event. You need to give it some time. You know, writers need to process, and then maybe in that regard, everything we write is in retrospect. I understand that, and I respect that. But also, I believe things have changed um, since, in the sense that we have entered an age in which literature also has to become analysis during the event, whilst things are happening. And so this little book was, in a sense, like a manifesto or a pamphlet about the times we're living in. It's a cliche to suggest to an author that writing might be cathartic, but I imagine in this case, more than perhaps in any, any way, it has helped you. That is true. And actually, um, I really don't see it as a cliche because this is how we process our own feelings, our own thoughts, confusions. And I think that is very human. We do it not only via the written word, but also the spoken word, words in general, whether we're writing or reading, it helps us to understand who we are, what we're going through at that moment in time. So books really help us. I also think they help us with our mental health to find our sanity. So maybe the choice of the word sanity in that regard was not coincidental. I especially wanted to use that word because it, it has a, a heavy toll, doesn't it? I mean, all these challenges on our mental well-being, and I think we should be able to openly talk about that as well. Well, it's clear, Elif, that, that you wouldn't judge others and that you wouldn't impose upon others the idea that they must write during such a, a crisis. Nonetheless, I, I like the idea that you, you feel maybe that you don't have the luxury to wait until the pandemic goes away. You wanted to have your say right here, right now. That is true. The luxury that we don't have, I think, maybe I phrase it slightly differently, as authors, I think we don't have the luxury of being non-political, apolitical, or disconnected. We don't have the luxury of saying, you know, I don't want to talk about what's happening outside the window. I just want to speak about my own fiction, my own literary world. Maybe until now you could do that. 
but especially authors who come from wounded countries such as Turkey or, or Brazil or the Philippines, Belarus. I mean, imagine that list is so long, particularly for us, you don't have the luxury of saying, I don't want to talk about what's happening on the streets when so much is happening on the streets. But a similar urgency is being experienced by Western authors as well at a time when thousands of people are dying um, out there everywhere because of the pandemic, but also that because the pandemic has revealed, exposed existing fractures and inequalities and injustices in our political systems and economic systems. So there is a lot that we need to urgently deal with together as humanity. And under these circumstances, I think no author can remain uh, disconnected or non-political. It's a huge challenge, isn't it, as, as a world, to face this pandemic at a time when we are so fractured anyway? We are fractured, also we're angry, uh, aren't we? I, I think in many ways this feels like the age of anger, anxiety, bewilderment, there's a lot of confusion. It is a dangerous crossroads too, because it's exactly when the demagogue enters the picture and says, you know, leave it just to me, I'm, I'm going to take care of everything, I'm going to simplify things. And that is um, an enticing promise. And many of us, because we're so exhausted, because it's so tiring these days, just to preserve your own you know, well-being and, and try to do the right thing when so much is happening, life has become very tiring and changes are happening very fast. There isn't even time to process yesterday's changes because to, today something else is happening. So against that speedy, um, change, the promises of populist demagogues can sound uh, alluring, can sound enticing, and in that regard I find it dangerous. I wouldn't believe anyone who promises us false simplicity and false sense of security. I think we need to recognize the fact that this is an age marked by complexities. We have massive challenges ahead of us as humanity, and these are international challenges, these are global challenges, starting with the climate of course. As we're speaking, our planet is burning and we do not have another planet. We do not have the luxury of postponing climate awareness. So whether it's the possibility of another pandemic, whether it's cyber terrorism, whether it's the financial crisis, it shows us that we're all interconnected as human beings. So to me, it's healthier to try to answer these challenges collectively with international solidarity rather than trying to retreat into our nationalistic tribes. I don't think that's the, the right way ahead. Immediately before the pandemic, of course, we, we wrestled ourselves almost to a standstill over Brexit. But a lot of the changes that, that Brexit may bring and will bring are deferred. They weren't all of them immediate. Whereas the, the pandemic story, the COVID story, is so particularly demanding because it involves all of us, it involved all of us right from the very beginning. Politics, in a way, has, has never been so real, so universally. That is true. And of course, the pandemic also urged us to reconsider our priorities. Maybe before the pandemic, we were, we didn't think that much about what is happiness. How do I describe, define happiness in my life? What is happiness? Is it more wealth, more power, more fame, more of everything? Or you start to appreciate seemingly small moments, just the ability to go out and, and take a walk in the park. Suddenly you realize what a privilege that is, or to be able to sit under a tree and read a book. Those seemingly small instances in daily life and also of course family friends the bonds that we construct in other words immaterial things we have to reconsider our priorities but if i may add this at the beginning of the pandemic we have been so often told that this was a great equalizer that we were all in this mess together as humanity east and west men and women you know rich and poor um, but under that surface, that facade of equality, in fact, the pandemic did not hit everyone equally. And I find it very important, very vital to speak about inequalities, to address inequalities urgently. And I use the word in, in a plural form deliberately because it's inequalities, whether it's racial inequality, class inequality, gender inequality, or regional inequality, 
all of these things matter enormously. So even in the city, you and I, we both know that even in London, if you're born into or if you're living in a relatively um, poorer, sorry, wealthier neighborhood, your chances of getting the virus and dying from the virus are much less than someone who is living in a disadvantaged, disprivileged, disempowered community. And that is not fair. The way it has hit black and brown and immigrant community is much harder. The way the financial crisis is going to affect women and, and minorities and young people, especially much harder, uh, and low paid jobs, people who are holding who are holding low paid jobs. So all of these are massive issues that we need to address and we need to do it honestly and urgently. Do you think these times are, are forcing us, or if they're not forcing us, we should nonetheless ask questions of ourselves in terms of how we how we fit into wider society so looking at our identity we know that identity politics has been a huge thing in recent years but by identity in this context i mean we're individuals we're private citizens but we also probably have a, a wider role don't we wider responsibilities how do we fit into society how do we fit into community how do we fit into our nation how do we fit into the world? Yeah. This idea of the global citizen. Yeah. There, are, there are big and important questions that perhaps we should be wrestling with. I agree, and I think it's a pity it's that um, this is never, almost never encouraged. I mean, we're constantly being pushed into boxes, and we're being told that we belong in those boxes, but we're not being necessarily told that we have multiple belongings which to me is more realistic, is more universal, is more human. I think we all have multiple belongings. Uh, you know my views. I mean, I look at, when I look at myself, of course, I realize I'm emotionally very attached to Istanbul and I will always be an Istanbulite wherever I go, wherever I live. I think it's also very clear in my work. But I also feel very attached to the Balkans. I think I have lots of elements in my soul from the Middle East. I'm European by birth, the values that I share. Over the years, I became a Londoner, a British citizen. I feel very attached to this country where I found the freedom to speak, to write as a woman, as a writer. At the same time, despite what politicians have been telling us in the UK, I think I would like to call myself as a citizen of the world. That doesn't mean you're a citizen of nowhere. It doesn't mean you're floating in the air aimlessly. But what populist politicians are telling us is that, well, that's a luxury, you know, not everyone has that luxury. It is, that is not the case. Whether we grow, grow up in the same place or whether we um, commute, commute across cultures, I think as human beings, we're all complex beings and we all have multiple belongings. It could be your ancestors' stories. It could be your sports or arts and cultural and social affiliations, maybe your sexual identity and many, many other things I might not know when I look at a person, but that person has multitudes inside. So that emphasis on multiplicity and pluralism is unfortunately, is deliberately, systematically eroded in the age of populism. But if we're paying attention, there are, I would suggest, moral questions, ethical questions that are being demanded of us. So we're looking around us and, and, and seeing a changing world, the, the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle have been cast up into the air. And, and how they fall is the responsibility of each of us, perhaps, in, individually. What, what sort of future do we want to live in? How do we live in harmony with the world, in harmony with each other? How do, how do we live as ethical a life as we can? Because sometimes it can feel, you can almost feel despair. You know, what, what are you not supposed to be doing? Driving can cause damage. Eating meat can cause damage. I mean, the... The, the, I mean, even, even watching a Zoom event might have a sort of ecological footprint, a carbon footprint. So it can, it can be quite challenging, can't it, to work out where to start and where to stop in fitting into the world around us as best we can. Yes, um, but I find it, I mean, you use the word despair, and I think it's so important because when we feel hopeless, when we feel like, well, nothing is going to change, Whatever I do, what effect, what impact might that have? Um, when we get into that zone of despair, I think it is very destructive. 
And I find apathy a very dangerous emotion. In other words, I think the most dangerous emotion is the lack of all emotions. When we slowly and gradually become numb inside. And it, this is possible. This has happened to so many people in the past generations. There's a reason why survivors of the darkest chapters in human history, including the Holocaust, when you read the memoirs of the survivors, they, almost all of them are warning us about the dangers of apathy, the dangers of numbness, because they think this is how horrific things can happen, not because people are evil by nature. There are some evil people, but their numbers are relatively very small. But then how come widespread atrocities can occur? And the survivors are saying maybe the opposite of goodness is not necessarily evil. Maybe the opposite of doing something good is actually becoming numb slowly. And once we reach that threshold, I think it is a much darker and more dangerous world. If you stop caring about my story, if I stop caring about your story, uh, if we stop caring about what's happening in another part of the world right now, that kind of an atomized world, which is divided into islands of selfishness and group narcissism, I think will be a much, much more fractured, polarized and aggressive world. So we need to be careful about the dangers of apathy. I think um, feeling pessimism from time to time is very human. I also think it's okay not to be okay at a moment like this. If we're following what's going on, if we are responding uh, through our hearts, from our hearts, of course we will be from time to time overwhelmed by anxiety, uh, maybe confusion or a sense of pessimism. All of that is part of the journey. We should acknowledge these negative emotions. And this is one of the things that I wanted to explore in this book. I mean, it's impossible, isn't it, to, to lead a life that doesn't have some form of negative impact. So drawing a line for ourselves as individuals, what we're prepared to do and what we're not prepared to do, can be, can be quite emotionally, psychologically challenging, can't it? Because as I said, just to, give, just to give an example, I mean, do we decide never to drive a car again? Do we decide never to fly an aeroplane again? Mm -hmm. I, I consider most of the people around me good people and yeah. yet all of them as i do do things that you could argue contribute negatively to, to the world so some sometimes one can feel like one's almost in an existential crisis there are so many demands being made of us as citizens of the world as custodians of our planet and climate change of course is a big thing that we're being forced to to, to come to terms with and the domino effect, how vulnerable we are in this pandemic, should, I, I, I think, open our eyes even more fully to the, to, to the challenges ahead if we, don't, if we don't tackle climate change. I suppose what I'm saying is, yeah, the despair thing is not so much about apathy for me, but about whether we feel it's possible to, to live a life that we're, that we're, that we're comfortable with. We, I mean, in other words, we, we have to make some compromises, don't we? Compromises, definitely. And to be honest, we don't have much time to make those compromises. We're talking about the next decade. If we miss this um, interval, then everything is going to speed up. Every you know, scientific research shows us this. So we don't have much time. But I hear what you're saying, and I don't approach it in absolutist terms. It is, I think, worthwhile. It is clearly important to at least minimize you know, if you're using plastic, maybe you won't be able to reduce it to zero. But if we can reduce it in our personal lives, this starting with today from 100% to 10%, that is an improvement. I think at the heart of it is just awareness, to be aware of what am I consuming? How, what kind of an impact does this have on my planet, on the society I'm living in? Also on the future of the next generations. It doesn't belong to us. The world... I, I think we need to go back to um, all the teachings, ancient teachings of indigenous tribes, of, of, for instance, shamans. I mean, they were all saying this, that that tree doesn't belong to me. I'm not, it's not my possession. You know, I'm not the owner of nature. We're all going through this journey together, but we human beings are not the owners of this planet. That kind of shift in our understanding, I find it very important. So we owe something to something big, to the next generations, to the planet we're living in, to the tree you're walking by. And, and I think we need to spread that kind of awareness. 
but also not be afraid of criticizing our own daily habits, consumptions, not in a, in a, in a harsh way, but with compassion, but also with clarity. You know, I might not be aware, maybe the, something that I'm wearing is, is part of fast fashion, then you should be able to say that to me and, and, and help me to become more aware of that. We can do, we can spread that kind of awareness with a sense of clarity, urgency, but also compassion. Tell us how you, you help to shape the world, make the world a better place through storytelling. Because you say in the book that, that stories bring us together. And you also quote Maya Angelou yeah. as saying there, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Yes. And I think many people are actually experiencing that agony, east and west, as we're speaking. Because so many of us, we have untold stories inside. And yet people feel like their voices are unheard. Even if they try to speak up, who's going to hear? Who's going to care? Will that make an impact? And that sense of being left voiceless is incredibly destructive for the human soul. And also it is quite ironic, given that Remember what happened late 1990s, early 2000s, where there was so much optimism in this world. And back then, the biggest optimists were tech optimists, telling us that thanks to digital technologies, thanks to Facebook and Twitter, everyone was going to have an equal voice, that we, were, we would be able to hear each other's voices um, across borders, regardless of you know, race and ethnicity and class. That did not happen. In fact, what we have ended up with is just this constant noise in which our voices are being drowned. So the fact that we're feeling voiceless at a time when we were supposedly uh, supposed to have a, you know, equal voice is, is even a bigger paradox and maybe adds, adds up to our sense of despair. But again, it comes back to inequality. So the question that I always ask myself as, a, as an author too is what are the, where are the voices, the unheard voices, the untold stories? Where is the periphery? People who have been pushed to the margins, the stories that have been censored, forgotten, erased. And to be more blunt, I think, who are the people who have not been invited to the table when the decisions were being made? I think this is the time when we need to honor those people and give more voice to those people and empower the disempowered. This kind of inequality is not sustainable. It cannot go on like this. But just as stories that we, we tell can bring us together, so un, untold stories can, can tear us apart. I mean, the wrong sort of story can, can tear us apart as well, the, the narrative of the populist, of the, of the strongman, of, of, of the nationalist. But I think as, as well as apathy, paralysis can be a dangerous thing. And, there was a sense in which you felt paralyzed when you were a young girl because you were sort of forced to, to write right-handed, weren't you? You were left-handed by nature. And your teacher, I think, one of your teachers, even in, invoked patriotism to try to encourage you to, to write with your right hand. And you're one of the last, if not the last, in your class of about 45, you say in the book, to learn to write. And I'm, I'm just curious, Elif, as to whether all of that, that, that pent-up, energy, the untold stories that, that you weren't able to tell because you weren't able to, to write as quickly as the others, whether somehow that nudged you in the direction of, or propelled you in the direction of, of becoming an author later in, later in life, or is that too tenuous a link? No, you, you might be right. Maybe in the long run, it, it, it had an impact on me. Uh, it shaped me. And also it made me realize that in cultures where sameness is worshipped you know venerated it's very difficult to be different for whatever reason so it made me understand the importance of diversity in the long run just this small example because you might be different for whatever reason it could be the color of your skin it could be your sexual identity it could be your political views how you look societies that do not build a healthy democracy are also societies that do not appreciate diversity and especially with populist nationalism, there's this imposition of sameness from above. Like you just need to blend in, do not stand out, do not be different. I find all of that very suffocating. So I had a taste of that throughout my upbringing in Turkey because the education system that we had was quite ultra-nationalistic, also very religious from time to time. 
Um, and, and like, for instance, in, the, in this case with left-handedness, the teacher would try every which way. She would give examples, like if you're holding the Turkish flag, you have to hold it in your right hand. So clearly your, your, your right hand is the good hand. Or she would mention things like, according to Islam, there are two angels sitting on our shoulders. The one sitting on the left shoulder writes down our sins and the one sitting on the right shoulder writes down your virtues. So clearly, again, the right side is the good side. So all of these messages, was, they were very confusing for a seven-year-old kid who is born left-handed. Um, but, but at the heart of it, I think, is this question, can we be ourselves? Can we be who we are? Can we love ourselves as we are? In a country where um, there is no appreciation of diversity, this is much harder. So again, I come back to minorities or people who are not being allowed to be who they are. I think maybe in the long run, it was one of the experiences that helped me more aware of these questions. You encourage us not to exist in, in echo chambers. You encourage us to interact with other ideas, with, dis, with dissimilar or challenging viewpoints, not to, not to shut down. And the worry, I suppose, is that there are dangers of groupthink, as we know, and there, there's the danger of a sense of collective narcissism. Yeah, yeah, true, true. And, and actually, it's happening across the ideological spectrum. I find it very important that we are aware of the dangers of echo chambers and, and, and repetitions. If all my friends think like me, speak like me, vote like me, dress up like me, it means I'm surrounded with my own replicas, right? And that's a very narcissistic existence. We do not learn anything from echoes. We learn from differences. And that's what challenges us intellectually, but also I think spiritually in this life. But I make a distinction here. I think we should be very critical of all kinds of racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, uh, and hate speech that divides humanity into groups and, and assumes that some people are better than other people. You know, we need to be very clear in our criticism of all these teachings. But at the same time, as a writer, I do know that not everyone comes from similar backgrounds, journeys, we change. As human beings, we learn. So to allow people to interact, to learn from each other is very important. Societies that are extremely polarized and, and badly, deeply politicized in that regard are also societies in which only populist demagogues benefit from that kind of constant tension. In other words, there's a reason why demagogues love to stalk duality of us versus them. You know, look at every case from Bolsonaro to Erdogan to Modi to Trump, there's a reason why they love to divide, divide, divide. They benefit from that tension. I think as people who believe in democracy, we need to do better and keep connecting uh, beyond, beyond political borders in that regard. And democracy, as you point out, doesn't stop at the ballot box. No, no, it doesn't, because otherwise Turkey would be, a would be a democracy. Otherwise, Belarus would be a democracy. In other words, these are countries in which there are, relatively speaking, regular elections. And I'm not underestimating the importance of the ballot box. Of course, I have enormous respect for elections. But what I'm trying to say is to assume that through elections you can achieve democracy is a false expectation. Because in addition to the ballot box, we need... Uh, fundamental components to keep this delicate ecosystem alive and by that components by those components I mean uh, primarily rule of law there has to be rule of law in a country there has to be separation of powers no individual in this life no party um, no group should have extreme power it is it is unhealthy it's not good so to cling to power these are very destructive things. So separation of powers, checks and balances, helps everyone, helps a democracy, but also free media, diverse media, independent academia, women's rights, minority rights, together with all those components, plus the ballot box, a democracy can survive. Otherwise, when the components are broken, you end up with majoritarianism. And I think we need to talk about majoritarianism in this age because it's happening as we're speaking from majoritarianism into authoritarianism, it's a very short slide. We, we know, Elif, that we're in, in, in 
incredibly difficult times, as we've talked about already. But you describe this moment in the book as a threshold moment, sort of in, in between them. And, and you use the example of elderly Turkish and Kurdish women in, in Anatolia, warning, I think, in your past, to, to beware of, of, of thresholds. Yeah. So this, this, to tell us whether we should be, feel empowered by this moment or fearful. Well, I think it is a moment of in between them because the old order is no more. It's gone. So when people with all the good intentions, when they say, when are we going to go back to the way things were before? We're not going to go back to the way things were before. And was that really normal? I think we need to raise that question. It wasn't normal. Maybe we thought it was, but there, there, was, there were so many inequalities, so many injustices, gaps, regional gaps. To give you an example, if all our or most of our resources go to big cities and people across the countryside or, or, or different regions feel left out and left behind, that is not a sustainable model. It, would create, it will create problems. So we're not going to go back to the way things were before the pandemic and we can't. We need to move forward. And how do we, how do, we do this? Um, the old order is no more, but the new order is not born yet. So it's a moment of elusiveness. It's a moment of in-betweenness. And as you mentioned, in Anatolia, elderly Turkish and Kurdish women, they usually call this the, the, the threshold or the space of the jinn. Why do they say this? Because the jinn in their folklore, in their beliefs, is the symbol of elusiveness. But everything can shift, you know? It's not, it's not a solid world anymore. It's a liquid world. Interestingly, Antonio Gramsci talks about this the Italian thinker, political um, scientist, and he says in that threshold of in-betweenness, lots of morbid symptoms can appear. On the one hand, there's, there's an amazing potential for change, improvement, because things are changing. But on the other hand, there's extreme confusion, chaos, complexity, and it's a liquid world. That is where we are right now. And to be optimistic, I mean, if you think about times of of great change and, and shift that that can often be when great art materializes i mean moments of, of flux moments of change are so significant in human life i mean just for, to take a prosaic example tax tends to be levied at moments of change at the moment of income coming in or the moment of selling a house or buying a buying a product but i wonder with in your case Elif, whether because you've experienced so much change in your life, you were born, I think, in Strasbourg, yeah. but then you moved to Turkey, but you spent some time in America, you spent time elsewhere, you, you've, you've come here, you're kind of, a, you're in kind of an exile here, yeah. yet you hold up very strongly on still to your Turkish identity. And I wonder whether, because you've experienced all this change, and you're in, in one sense an outsider in what is now your home. I mean, you talk in the book of, of citizens of the world walking like strangers in their own home in, the, in their own homeland. I wonder because you've experienced all this change and you are almost um, an, an emblem of change yourself. Whether that has helped give you insights into how things work in this country, but not just this country, how things work in, in inside human beings. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I understand and I appreciate your question. Maybe in some ways it has given me insights. Um, into how fast things can change and how fast things can go backwards. I find this important because until not that long ago, many people, especially in the Western world, they used to assume that the world was divided into almost two parts, like solid countries, solid lands and liquid lands. And people assume that freedom of speech, human rights, women's rights, these were especially needed in those liquid lands over there that had not achieved their democracy yet, but they were not as necessary or as urgent in the Western world because the Western world was a democracy, you know, um, maybe it wasn't perfect, but democracy had been achieved. So the, the general assumption was that you didn't have to worry about freedom of speech, you didn't have to worry about women's rights. But I think especially after 2016, that dualistic way of reading the world has been shattered to pieces. And now more and more people realize that actually there is no such thing as solid lands versus liquid lands. And history can actually go backwards sometimes 
You can't say that time always moves in a linear, progressive way. Um, so people maybe realize today more that we're living in liquid times, as the late uh, thinker Zygmunt Bauman used to talk about, which means we all need to care about human rights. We all need to care about women's rights or freedom of speech. Right now in America, historic debates are taking place with regards to LGBTQ rights, women's reproductive rights, you know, and, and people realize that the rights that they've been enjoying and taking granted for a while now actually can be reversed in a, in a very short span of time. So that kind of awareness has to make us more alert about about the fact that democracy is much more fragile than we initially assumed. You say in the book, and, and you, you've been intimating there, and you've been saying in our conversation so far, that effectively, that human beings are boundless. I mean, we are, we are ourselves fluid. We, we have multiple belongings. In, in a time of external change, such as what we're living through at the moment, you can understand why some people will want more than ever to feel a rootedness, to feel mm -hmm. a, a sort of geographical sense of belonging. You can see why populists play on that, not just in these times, but often in, 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 troubling, in troubling moments in history. So how do we, what's the answer to that, to that urge that some people will feel to, to have a connectedness that is, that is obvious? Yeah, and, I, and I, I find this question so important. It, first of all, I think we need to stay away from dualities, from this... Um, dichotomic way of thinking which is also encouraged by the populist narrative in other words populists tell us that you can be either local or a globalist elite and I refuse that duality I think it is possible to have very strong local roots at the same time to be a patriot at the same time to have strong regional roots right and at the same time, to care about the planet, to care about the world. Actually, if you're a patriot, you have to care about the world because you want a better future for your children and for your grandchildren, right? Just to see the connections that no country can survive on its own. No culture is an isolated island, even if you're an island geographically, none of us is. Just to see, be aware of how deeply interconnected we are. If the planet is going to be destroyed tomorrow, that's going to affect eventually each and every country, each and every city and region. So we need to get rid of this dualistic way of thinking. It is possible to, be, to think locally, regionally, and at the same time globally or internationally. That to me is an important starting point, but it also comes back to multiple belongings. If I can be multiple things, then it's easier for me to understand the connections. If I think of myself as a singular identity, then clashes are inevitable. You, you write that your, your Turkishness you, and, and, this, and your sense of Istanbul, I think, travels with you or accompanies you. Mm. But as someone who is effectively in exile, is there a sense of sadness that, that you carry with you? I mean, I think of my own identity and I have multiple identities too. I feel very strongly, I suppose, probably more English than British, but I also feel half Jewish, and I feel very connected to the huge history of my grandparents on my father's side, who were, who were Jewish refugees and escaped the Holocaust in different, in different ways at just slightly different times. And I'm very proud of that. I don't know whether pride is the right word, but I feel very proud of it. I don't carry sadness around with me. I, was, I don't think my grandparents did either. I think they probably... It may well have, I think my grandmother may well have felt anger towards the country that had spurned her. Yeah. She was a deeply good person. I just, I just wonder with you whether these multiple belongings are more complicated than just positive, whether you, whether you do feel sadness. Of course I feel sadness. And I think um, that's, I, ca I can never ignore that. You know, as you, may, you may call it a melancholy, you may call it sadness, a sense of longing a sense of absence. So all of that is very much part of, you, you use the word exile, and exile is not an easy word. It's not an easy thing to carry emotionally because you have these fractured, uh, maybe attachments in, in one single moment in time. I might be here, but also I might be emotionally elsewhere. All of that is, is, is not that easy to manage. 
But again, I think in order to understand the complexity of that experience, both in its joys, strength, but also weaknesses and sadnesses, we need literature because the art of storytelling can bring out that complexity. We can't do that via daily life politics in which there's no room for nuances, right? In which, you know, everything is moving in a very fast way. We need to slow down to understand that experience and we need literature. Maybe this is why I feel very much at home at the end of the day in Storyland. We know, Elif, that if we bring it back to the, to the individual and how we're coping ourselves individually for a moment, rather than seeing ourselves as part of the wider context. Although we have, in order to answer this question, I think we have to take on board the wider context again. As individuals, we might be experiencing anxiety or depression. We might be experiencing challenges with our mental health at the moment. And I'm, I'm, neither of us are mental health experts, but, but we're told that it's good to reach out. And I certainly reach out whenever I can when, I, when I'm struggling mentally. How, how, do we then, how do we then combat this idea that you put, put forward in the book that, in a way, this is an age of contagious anxiety? So how do, how do we avoid that contagion at the same time as making sure that individuals are helped? Yeah, beautiful question. Um, first of all, I think we need to... Well, one mistake that we're making, I mean, at least like, when I look at myself, I realise it's the one mistake that I've made several times, was to assume that other people were coping with things just fine and, and that I was, I was the only one who was struggling. And then you ask yourself, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be happier? Why can't I do it better when everyone else is just coping fine? And actually, that's an illusion. So it is healthy, healthier to be able to talk about our struggles. If you share with me, if I share with you, if we understand that actually at different moments in our lives, we go through so many different seasons, everything becomes much more manageable. So I always start with that. And I find it very human, especially in this moment when we're faced with so many challenges. I think, especially with the pandemic, mental health problems have increased. Whether you're a young person, whether you're an elderly person, many of us are right now trying to cope with almost an existential angst. That, to me, is very understandable. At the same time, there's a contagious anxiety that is being stoked by a populist narrative. For instance, if immigrants come, they're going to steal your jobs. I remember throughout this Brexit debates, this huge billboard that said, Turkey is joining the EU, 70 million of them, so it's time for us to leave. And the people who put that billboard up there, they knew that Turkey was not going to join the EU anytime soon, right? And even if it does join, God knows in you know, how many decades, uh, it is manageable, this uh, movement of people, you know, movement of workers. It's not like 80 million people are going to just barge in. But the idea was to stoke fear. So I'm talking about that kind of contagious fear or anxiety that's being manipulated by populist nationalistic um, rhetoric. We need to stay away from that and be aware of the dangers of that. And I suppose that's just an example of, of bad storytelling, isn't it? Stories being used very effectively, but, but toxically. Yes. You say in the book, I think that it's totally fine not to feel fine and that you think I think it's imp important to acknowledge the dark side of our emotions, but the, those, the dark side of our emotions is where we start, perhaps. It's not where we end up. Yeah. Maybe explain a little bit more about that. And I, I'm not necessarily specifically talking about clinical mental health here, because, I mean, that's probably outside of our remit, but, but more generally in, 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 in confronting ourselves as, as human beings and negotiating a, a way forward with ourselves. Yeah. You know, um, I, as you mentioned earlier, I, I lived in, in America for about five years. And, and one of the things that struck me in the, my, the change in my daily life, moving from Istanbul to Boston, and then I moved to Michigan, and then I moved to Arizona, and teaching and, and writing in these places, was how easily in daily life, many Americans use smiling faces, you know, smiling faces at the end of their emails, smiling faces on the walls, cupboards, lockers, to me, it was a bit of a shock. 
And after a while, I started to get annoyed because there are days when you feel that, you know, when that smiling yellow face uh, sticker, I mean, uh, reflects your mood, but there are some days when it doesn't reflect your mood at all. And then you want that to be recognized. You want to recognize it in yourself. All I'm trying to say is, I don't like to be forced to, you know, you don't have to be happy. You don't have to be smiling. You don't have to be with high energy all the time. I, I think that's an illusion to embrace how sometimes our energy drops, to understand maybe a darker side of our psyche, mind, all of that is actually understood better and analyzed better by artists and writers, because again, it's all about nuances. But there's a danger here. We cannot romanticize the dark side either. So once you recognize the existence of those seemingly negative emotions in our lives, rather than sweeping them under the carpet, the next challenge is what do I do with that? Because they all have high energy. How do I turn that high energy into something more constructive? Maybe, maybe to you know, put it slightly differently, I understand anger and I understand why people are angry at a moment like this, you know, when, when, um, when there's so much racial injustice outside, of course people are going to feel angry, but anger in the long run can also be repetitive, destructive. So, once we embrace and understand and honor anger, we have to turn it into something much better, much constructive. And the only way to do that is to do it together as human beings. Yeah, because you, you say in the book, I mean, you give this incredibly bleak quote in the book while, while addressing anger, while talking about anger, from Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. I, I am just pain covered in, in skin. So given that there is a lot of anger out there, it needs to be addressed, doesn't it? It needs to be understood and, and, and channeled maybe positively or, or converted almost like in a chemical experiment into something positive. True. And of course, um, that quote is so poignant because it also uses the word pain, right? Underneath anger, there's pain. Uh, and anger has a long memory. I think it's the one emotion with the longest memory. So that pain is not forgotten easily. Sometimes it's transferred from one generation to the next. So when we don't recognize people's pain, it adds more insult to the injury. And, and that has to be our starting point. But it all comes back to empathy. Can we empathize with people who might have had different life experiences just to leave our own truths, our own window perspective, at least for a couple of hours and to have the cognitive ability to look at the truth from someone else's perspective and understand their pain, understand maybe they're, um, they're hurt and, and honor that and recognize that. This to me is very important. And just very briefly to return to apathy, because apathy in a way is, as we said, the, the opposite of anger or, or, or even evil. Mm -hmm. Hardliners, as you put it, have a habit of being more passionate, more, more engaged than moderates. How do the moderates get heard? How do they lift their voices above the polarized fray? Yes, I, I really find this question very important because especially in social media, when you look at the comments that are being written under any video or, or program, it's usually people who are very upset at it or very much pro, people who are more passionate who comment. But people who are um, moderate, they don't usually express it as much. So there's that going on. Um, and usually it is the angrier people who speak up louder, which I find problematic. But on the other hand, something else is happening, which is another layer. And it is happening in this country as well. Every study has shown us that as Brexit debates kept going on and on and on, and people realized that this was not like an oven-made deal, um, people started to feel a fatigue, and, and we now call it Brexit fatigue. As a result of that, many citizens, when they hear more Brexit news, they just turn off the TV or change the channel, or they don't read that newspaper column anymore. But at the end, when we do that, again, moderates take a step out of the public space and public debates, and that space becomes dominated by hardliners who, as you said, happen to be more passionate and they speak up louder. So to me, it's very important that as people who believe in core democratic values, 
we also make our voices heard and we honor diversity and inclusion in the public space. Otherwise, if our debates are dominated by hardliners, I don't think we will be going in, a, in the right direction. And how do we remain engaged, but also sane? Because I, mean, I experienced this as, as a presenter on LBC earlier in the year, in the, in the midst of the pandemic, the first wave, I mean, I, I would find myself being triggered by the constant news stories that I was having to stay across, stay on top of, because we all, journalists, citizens, everyone, we are all part of this story, as I said earlier. So how do we manage to, to remain engaged in the world around us, but also sane? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredibly important question. I mean, you spend some time on Twitter, um, looking at what's happening in the world here, there and everywhere. And then after a while, you realize your, your soul is crushed, right? Our, our souls are crushed because everything is, keeps happening with a, with a bewildering speed, actually. So the answer I can give is to make a distinction between information, knowledge and wisdom. We are bombarded with information, let alone misinformation. And the truth is we cannot handle this much information. Our brains cannot process, our souls cannot register this much information. And after a while, we just keep you know, skipping, um, scrolling up and down, but that's not really engagement. So I think we need less information, reduce the amount of information that we're dealing with in our daily lives, but increase knowledge. And ultimately, we have to increase wisdom. In order to increase knowledge, we need in-depth analysis. We need books. We need investigative journalism to focus, go deeper, slow down. But ultimately, we need wisdom. And for that, we need to bring the mind and the heart together. That requires emotional intelligence and empathy. For that, I think we also need art and literature. Because in the book, I mean, just on that point, you say there's too much information, but there's less knowledge and there's even less wisdom. A big and important difference between information and, and knowledge, between fact and fake news, between truth and, and deliberate mis misinformation. True. And also information is just snippets, like morsels of what happened where and, you know, it's, it's, it's a constant flow, right? It also gives us the illusion that we know the subject. I think information is an obstacle in front of true knowledge. We forgot to say, I don't know. When was the last time we ever said, I don't know about anything? I mean, you can ask me about anything. And if I don't know the answer, I can Google it. In the next five minutes, I can manage to say a couple of words about that subject, which will give me the illusion that I know something about the subject. In fact, I know nothing about it. So it is healthier to distinguish information and knowledge because it will also help us to realize what we don't know. Knowledge requires to slow down. You can't, you can't you know, speed up, rush to attain knowledge. Wisdom is even slower, is even more nuanced, is even more inward looking. It requires a nuanced journey um, and it requires empathy, I think. So where do we find knowledge then? We find knowledge in books. Um, both fiction and non-fiction. I think we should read across, across the you know, spectrum, not only read people who agree with us, but also allow us ourselves to be challenged. Read books that are not necessarily fitting in our, into our discipline or our comfort zones. So primarily books, but also there's very good investigative journalism, which I respect a lot, more in-depth analysis, you know, which helps us to look at the issue from multiple angles. Um, and, and we need storytelling. We can find that also by be becoming better listeners. We need to learn to become better listeners. And don't be afraid of complexity, you counsel us. Don't be afraid of complexity. Don't be afraid of emotions. Yeah, definitely. Um, don't be afraid of emotions. And I think there's a lot of pressure on so many of us. Women feel pressured, for instance, women in politics, in order to exist in a male-dominated world. Many women feel the pressure and, and they want to not show their emotions because emotions are regarded as a sign of weakness, which is nonsense. I think men and women, we're all emotional creatures. Sometimes men also feel a lot of pressure because they think um, they 
I mean, they're expected to act, to conform into a given description of masculinity, of manhood, strength, robustness. Again, these things always go hand in hand with populist nationalism. So we need to understand that showing our emotions is not a sign of weakness at all. Just an example, when you look at the countries that have dealt relatively better with the pandemic, many of them have leaders, especially women leaders in many cases, that have been able to show their emotions, empathy, listen to people um, and, and see what they're going through. None of that is, is a sign of weakness. I, I found it fascinating that you said, say in the book, that too much optimism can lead to complacency. Yeah. Yes, because it gives us uh, this idea that you know, I don't have to do anything, I don't have to worry, because the world is moving in the right direction. There's the arc of history. It was a term actually that Clinton also um, used, I remember. And the arc of history always bends towards justice and equality, so things will improve eventually, whether I participate or not, whether I do something for it or not. That kind of... Um, you know, if we, be, if we disconnect ourselves like that, I think optimism can, can become dangerous, doesn't it? And, it? and it leads us into a very hollow, maybe romanticism, that there's a linear progress and that democracy is inevitable, that all those countries... Remember, China was expected to become a democracy because how can it not if it has embraced capitalism? Well, it turns out it, it didn't turn out that way at all. So we need to reconsider all of those extreme optimistic assumptions. And that's why I think this is an age in which we need conscious optimism, but also creative pessimism. We're going to need both. How optimistic are you? Then? I find pessimism easier than optimism, to be honest. Maybe it's a cultural thing because where I come from, you know, sometimes I jokingly think as you go towards, if you open a map of Europe, as you walk towards Romania, Bulgaria, um, the Balkans in general, Black Sea, Turkey, the level of optimism drops. So um, maybe it's in my cultural DNA, pessimism is easier. But joking aside, I think I feel more optimistic when I listen to young people, when I talk to people and, and realize how resilient they are. And sometimes you're also a little bit ashamed of your own maybe moments of confusion and, and, and doubt when you see people who are struggling with so much more and, and, you, and you realize how resilient they are. Uh, not in a perfect way, but in a very human way. So I like that. I like to learn people's stories. Listening makes me more optimistic, but I think the mind uh, should remain more, more of a pessimist and that's okay too. You, you say that, you say all jokes aside, jokes aside, a lot of what you talk about, in, in, a lot of the, the, the subjects that you cover in your fictional writing yeah. are you know, deeply important, challenging, sometimes dark, difficult issues, parts of what it is to be a human being. Where's the role for humour, do you think? I love humour and, and I'm so glad you brought it up because I think that's our oxygen, isn't it? That's how we breathe. Again, it's not a coincidence that in countries where democracy has been crushed, where the civil society has been shattered, we also see humor being restricted because humor is not allowed. When people can laugh at themselves, you know, not in a cruel way, not from above, but with compassion, that's, that's very healthy. That's very beautiful, actually. And it helps us to move on. It helps us to heal ourselves. When you realize your own maybe flaws and silly mistakes and how obsessions, to be aware of that. So along with humor, there's awareness. And I love, I love humor. I think humor is a very central part of my work. Maybe I like the dialectics of humor and sorrow. I like it when they talk to each other. And this is something that I've learned in Istanbul, because in a city like Istanbul, humor and sorrow live together. They're not mutually exclusive. You come across a moment of such sadness in which there's something funny, almost surreal going on, or vice versa. Inside humor, there's, you realize there's a, there's a core of pain. So Istanbul teaches you that actually they're very interrelated. We're overrunning. It's been so brilliant talking to you, as it always is, Salif. But 
I just want to, to finish with just one or two quick questions about you. First, and I should have asked you this probably right at the beginning, tell us about your gloves. <laughs> I don't know why it's one of those obsessions, but when I write, especially, um, because the thing about you know being left-handed and then struggling with being converted to right-hand, I hate my handwriting as a result. I find it very difficult to write anything longhand. So the keyboard for me is the only time when my left hand and right hand can connect and speak to each other. I like to write on a computer. And when I do, I usually wear fingerless gloves, um, unless it's very hot outside or summer's day. I have all kinds of gloves in, in, different, in different colors, all of them fingerless, and, and that's how I type. I, I told you this before, Elif, but going back to what you said about your handwriting, my own grandmother, the same grandmother earlier, who I said was a, a refugee of sorts from, yeah. from Hitler and, and from Austria, she was forced to write with her right hand when she was a child because it was thought, I think, the left hand was the hand of the devil. I mean, you know, sinister, coming from the Latin maybe, and so forth, sinistra, perverse. Yeah. And, and she, therefore, couldn't write very well. I mean, she, was, she got a first-class degree from Cambridge, but she was... She, she couldn't write very well and, and her handwriting was pretty much unintelligible. Yeah. Extraordinary, isn't it? And what we do to ourselves as human beings. Fascinating, absolutely. Tell us also quickly about your books, because I love your background. Of all the Zoom backgrounds that I've, I've, I've seen from my interviewees over recent months, this is one of the very best. And maybe, maybe you could just tell us, it's a sort of trite question, but what are you reading at the moment? And do you, have, do you have more than one book on the go at any one time? Yeah, yeah, I usually do that. And I like to read fiction and non-fiction. So at least two books at the same time, it, it, it helps me to focus better. Um, it's, it's my, my bookshelves are very chaotic in the sense that there's no order, they're not color-coordinated, they keep shifting. But I think just to make the act of reading continuous in our lives and not to lose our curiosity. We can read anything, everything. I've never believed in that distinction between highbrow literature, lowbrow literature, who even decides? You know, so one day you might be reading political philosophy, maybe the next day it's cookbooks. You know, you can spend an entire day reading cookbooks. Um, I, I don't believe in those boxes and, and categories, but just to constantly read, to be open, to learn new things. I think that's, that's what we need. And just a final, question and only briefly because we've run out of time I said at the beginning how important it is that we continue to meet like this even during the, the pandemic more than ever during the pandemic and I imagine you share with me a, a conviction that it's so important that the arts are the arts are supported I know how much you love going about the country normally appearing on stage at festivals having your voice heard listening to other voices we've been on stage several times together but yeah I suppose maybe just a final word on how on how you feel we should be supporting the arts at the moment. Yes, one thing that worries me, um, as we're going through economic difficulties and unexpected challenges, sometimes political leaders can speak as if arts and culture are a luxury. You know, in these challenging times, they're not a priority. We need to be very careful about the dangers of that. Art is not a luxury. Culture is not a luxury. Literature is not a luxury. They are incredibly essential for our well-being, both individually and collectively, for, for the society's coexistence, for our mental health and well-being. So as far as I'm concerned, both art and literature are as essential as the water we thirst for or the bread that we need, you know, the food that we need, or the air that we need. They can't be postponed. They're not a, just, just a footnote. To invest in arts, to invest in culture, literary festivals is today even more essential than ever before. Like you, I miss uh, actual festivals. I miss that human connection, you know, book signings. So there's a part of me that's longing for um, meeting under the same roof. But at the same time, I also appreciate digital events because you realize many people who might not have access to cultural events otherwise now are able to join in and that is precious. There's more diversity when we look at digital audiences. How can we underestimate that? But most importantly, despite the restrictions, despite the challenges, the fact that we keep talking, we keep sharing stories and having nuanced conversations is I believe very important. So in a nutshell, all I can say is 
I think arts and literature, these are among our last remaining democratic spaces, spaces of diversity and inclusion, so they should be treasured in this challenging moment. I treasure speaking to you. It's been a real privilege. It, it always is. It's so engaging and, and reinvigorating. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to everyone as well for, for being here, watching, listening, and, and, and taking part and being part of, of it. As Elise, as it's so important that we continue to support the festivals and support the arts. Elise, thank you so much. I'm so, so grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Hith Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.